We're trying to sort of lower the barrier to having some sort of responsibility-informed development of data and sharing of data that speak to values of non-discrimination. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Meg Mitchell, the Chief Ethics Scientist and Researcher at Hugging Face. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Meg joined us just over a year ago with another friend of the show, I should say, Emily Bender. That was episode 467 for those keeping track, where we discussed your paper on the dangers of stochastic parrots. And of course, a ton has changed for you since then. Welcome back to the podcast, Meg. How's everything going? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Meg, welcome back. And let's have you reintroduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, so I am a computer scientist with a background in natural language processing, as well as a bit in computer vision. And then for the past six or so years, I've been working on ethical AI, which brings in a lot of things about natural language processing and computer vision in terms of issues like foreseeable harms and misuse and things like that. And I've worked at Microsoft Research, Google, Google Brain, and then recently around November joined Hugging Face full-time which is a startup that is an open source community making machine learning models and data sets generally available. Awesome. Awesome. And are you the first chief ethics scientist at the company? Well, we're a startup, so (laughs) we, there aren't exactly very set in stone titles. Uh (laughs) You can kind of start coming up with your own titles for things. I was definitely the first AI ethics computer scientist. Yeah. I'm excited to share that we're going to hire a for real ethicist. Okay. Which will be amazing. It's pretty rare to be able to hire an ethicist in an AI company. I think that that is something that only came into people's attention very recently. But yeah, I mean, I came to work at Hugging Face because I really wanted to have some time to just code and code open source. At the larger tech companies, you find as you sort of rise higher and higher in the hierarchy, you have less and less time to code and it's replaced more and more by meetings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is sort of which is sort of the opposite of you want of what you want as you yeah. succeed, right? Like if you love coding and you succeed more, why would that be taken away in favor of meetings, which I absolutely hate. Yeah. So <laughs> so after having a couple years where basically it was really hard for me to get coding time in, I really wanted to join Hugging Face and just sort of not worry about tons of meetings, not worry about tons of syncing across a large organization because it was already small, I could really just get my hands dirty with code and starting to put out some tools that I really, really wanted to prioritize. And then once I got that out of my system a little bit, (laughs) I was able to start popping up a little more, working more on things like defining the culture, hiring practices, different kinds of processes that we want to put in place for consideration of what models get shared, what data get shared and, and things like that. So I've been doing a little less coding, but it's still a coding company, essentially. Mm-hmm. So getting to do a mix of defining top-down structures and processes in the company, 
focusing on like diversity and inclusion and ethical considerations, as well as more bottom up, just pure coding to share with the world. So it's a nice mix. Got it. Got it. And the coding that you're doing, is that been largely focused or tied into the area of ethics or is, are they two separate kind of things that you find ways to connect? Yeah. So I would say that all the coding that I'm prioritizing right now is intimately tied to current discussions around AI ethics. So you'll see that over the past year or so, there's been more and more scholarship in the AI ethics world about data and data sets and things like benchmarking. And the fact that the culture of machine learning has generally had a really laissez-faire approach to data collection and data sharing. Mm -hmm. But if we're trying to think about the long-term effects of technology and the long-term effects of things like sharing data, then we need to think very critically about things like data curation instead. And what does data curation mean? It means things like, what kind of values do we want to encode in the data, as well as in the data set development process, in order to create data sets that foreseeably can help more than hurt? And so that means things like coming up with measurements, quantifications of the data that can be inspired by human values. So there's been some work on this over the past year as well, but I'm trying to really step that up a bit. And so what does that mean? That means coming up with uh, metrics for the demographic diversity within a data set, coming up with metrics for stereotyping, how much a data set might run the risk of propagating harmful stereotypes, doing things like measuring the naturalness of the language, how contrived it is versus how much it actually reflects the kind of language that we'd expect to see when when a model trained on it is actually used, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. So data development has been a large focus of mine and particularly through the through the lens of what can we measure aligned to human human values and what we want to develop. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to want to circle back to that, but before I do, I also want to bring up your participation in the Wiki M3L workshop at iClear. Can you tell us a little bit about that workshop, the goals of the workshop, and what you're speaking about there? Yeah, so it's an interdisciplinary workshop that's focusing on a lot of different topics. I think part of the idea was essentially to bring together people who are working on different aspects of AI and how those aspects can be really relevant to the community. So this is joint with Wikimedia. And Wikimedia is really passionate about having everything be open and transparent. And so what that means for computer vision, NLP, machine learning, what we should make available, what we shouldn't, what that means in terms of uses of the models that we're developing and then how they might actually be used. All of that is sort of under the umbrella of of this workshop, touching on a lot of different issues relevant to the socio-technical context Mm-hmm. of machine learning. Mm-hmm. And your particular session at the workshop, what's that one focused on? Yes. So I get to be involved in two. One is a panel. The panel is looking at multimodality, which is an area I've worked on to do things like image descriptions for people who are blind. And then also there's uh, a keynote I'm giving on biases in AI 
The session is called Biases in AI and Indigenous Data Sovereignty. So there's another speaker. I believe his name is Michael Running Wolf. Awesome. Awesome. And I should mention, I mentioned the workshop by its short name, WikiM3L, but that is Wikipedia and Multimodal and Multilingual Research. And so your conversation at the presentation at the workshop focused on data governance and biases in AI. That sounds pretty, not very far afield from the data curation work that we talked about earlier. Exactly. What's the specific angle that you're taking at the workshop? So my plan is to talk about the kinds of assumptions and values that get encoded when we are creating and sharing data sets. So there's a lot of things you can talk about when you say biases in AI. That means tons of different things. But my particular interest, I think relevant to this workshop, is around how we have inclusive sharing of data sets and creation of models that don't disproportionately underperform on some subpopulations or sort of exploit some populations in the data collection practices. So this has a little bit more to do with biases from the perspective of how we're approaching data set collection, what our sort of internal cognitive biases and cultural biases are doing in our approach to data and the kind of models we develop, as opposed to something that's, I think, more traditional bias than AI, where people think of things like fairness Mm-hmm. I won't be focusing on fairness. I'll be talking more about the context of data and how they relate to models and advocating for things like data sovereignty, which is the part of that session where individuals and communities who are creating the data have rights mm-hmm. for that data, as opposed to the current state of the art, which is, which is essentially being exploited without consent to have their data used in models that are then productionized for profit and things like that. So focusing more on the on the data sovereignty side of things. On the biases side of things, it, it sounds like what you're alluding to is this idea that as we as practitioners, researchers, a community go out and collect these data sets, there are inherent ways that we think about the world that are influencing the ultimate results of these data sets. Can you talk a little bit more about you know, the specific examples and, and how that comes to be? Yeah. So this is also really relevant to work I've been doing in big science, which is this massive effort, international effort with volunteers from a bunch of different countries working on training this large language model. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll just jump in to suggest the folks that want to learn more about that can check out my recent interview with your colleague, Thomas Wolf. That's awesome. episode 564. Yeah. And so in that, I'm unsurprisingly working on data as well. I think in part because it's generally been less appreciated than ML work. I mean, data collection practices have morphed over the years. So You'll see in some of the first larger data sets that that were developed for use in what was at that time called corpus linguistics were very carefully balanced, made sure to pay attention to the licenses and rights of the various people who created the data. So we see things like, like the Brown Corpus coming around in the early 60s, actually, 
taking a look at things like fiction and sports and travel and all these sort of different topics and trying to be really balanced and making sure that they have agreement from the holders of the data that this is okay to use and distribute and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, fast forward into the 90s where we're starting to see a switch from corpus linguistics to computational linguistics. I mean, there's still separate fields, but there's more and more changing at that time in the kinds of work that corpus linguists are doing more towards computational linguistics. And what that means is that you start trying to get bigger and bigger data sets where the size matters a lot more than the quality. Yeah. So quantity over quality sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then then moving into, oh, I should say, but at that time, there was still a lot of respect for the rights and licenses. And so a lot of the data collected in the 90s was from uh, Newswire because those were the sources that would allow this public use. And then into the 2000s, as you start to have Web 2.0, basically, you start to see a lot of content produced online from individuals reflecting more natural language, right? So when we work on natural language processing, Newswire is just some sort of contrived kind of way of talking, you know, it has like a lot of norms you have to abide by. Whereas regular conversation or what we're writing online is a lot more reflective of sort of everyday language use. Mm -hmm. So with kind of the birth of Web 2.0, you see people collecting data from the web, sort of mining it to create larger data sets to build models on with less and less attention paid to what those data sets actually were representing and more attention paid to what can I get that's relevant to the topic or task that I care about. And so with that, you see a little bit more of a loss of rights. This also relates to the fact that when we communicate online, our data can be technically owned by the platform, right? So when we tweet, that data is owned by Twitter, things like that. And so even people who are creating really relevant data, and this can be called data labor, you know, essentially creating the content themselves, they don't end up having as many rights to that actual data where other companies can use that data. It could be further shared to help build other sort of models or to help other companies without the knowledge of the people actually creating that data. And then even when you are putting in place some things that clearly has the intention of rights, so even when you are putting on things like Creative Commons licenses, that kind of thing, it doesn't actually match to how your data can legally be used by anyone, at least in practice, right? What I'm hearing is that... You know, this kind of field of play around creating these large language models and, and other kind of large models has evolved quickly. And there's a lot of rules that haven't been established or conversely norms that aren't necessarily, you know, universally beneficial have established. Love to have you talk about the specific harms that you see at play. Like clearly there's this idea of economic harm in a sense of people are contributing this data, other companies are monetizing it in ways that weren't necessarily disclosed to the people that contributed the data and the the benefit isn't being shared. And you could argue whether that's theoretical harm or actual harm, but there's this idea of an economic harm. There's this idea of, you know, just as a, I should 
have the right to give you permission or not. I don't know how to phrase what the right phrasing would be for the the harm that is involved in that. But those are a couple of examples of harms. And I just wanted to have you elaborate on that and further develop, you know, is there a taxonomy of harms that has arisen from the way that we're collecting these data sets? Yeah. So there has been work on taxonomy of harms. I think people in different groups have come up with their own. There isn't, as far as I know, a generally agreed upon kind of taxonomy. Mm -hmm. But one of the key issues is around privacy. So when we share content online, we have a basic understanding or, or trust that what we're producing is not going to be suddenly on some graduate student's laptop or something like that. So if you have information about your personal life that can be used to track you, I mean, there's also things like personally identifying information. So with just a few characteristics of an individual, you can often identify who they are, which can give rise to things like stalking, to things like identity theft, as well as just sort of the very the very personal issue of having things you say be used by other people without you really knowing and potentially even used for technology that you don't want to support, right? So I think Flickr is a really great example where it's been mined for years for computer vision applications. And so some of that data is used for things like facial recognition, but theoretically, and I think, you know, in reality, a lot of people who's faces where mind don't actually want to help build facial recognition. Mm -hmm. And so there's a disconnect there between what people's intent and expectations are when they're creating the data and how that data is actually being used in a way where it could potentially even come back and harm them. So for example, we know that facial recognition does not work as well for Black people as white people. And so there's an argument to be made (laughs) that maybe white people don't want to have their faces shared as much if it's going to create that kind of issue. There's a concern that facial recognition is used as a form of discrimination. So, you know, Black people tend to be more targeted. And so Black people who have their data as part of what's using what is being used to train a facial recognition system is really not a situation that they ever hoped to be in where it can come back and harm them if they're targeted. So it ends up creating these these problematic kinds of cycles where the beliefs and intentions of people who are creating the data are not actually met by how different companies and organizations end up using that data potentially to disrupt their privacy, as well as things like creating technology that could come back to hurt them. Mm -hmm. And tying back to your earlier comment about connecting the uh, inherent beliefs of the data set collectors to the data sets and these problems, is it by the inherent beliefs of the the folks collecting the data sets, you know, are you meaning things like disregard for the privacy considerations or are there more specific things that you're trying to get at there? Yeah, disregard for, but also private information that, that can be used to identify people. You know, if you have bad actors, malicious actors, your data can potentially be mined to steal your social security number credit card number. These are the sorts of things that end up being stolen all the time, as well as uh, figuring out personal information about you, which is a kind of fundamental harm when it comes to psychological safety. And so when you think about where we are from a a data rights perspective, what's the kind of frontier of the research or frontier of the practice? Is it primarily 
what we're seeing around legislative and, and regulatory action? Or, you know, how do you think about the state of the world? Yeah, so there has been a lot more work in the regulatory space on data protection, data protection laws. I think most people are familiar with GDPR, but a lot of countries very recently have put forward some other sorts of data protection legislation. And one of the ideas underlying this is that if people create the data, they own the data. And that really takes away the profit models of companies like Google that uses this information in order to essentially get people to look at ads more. And so, you know, if they don't get to own that data, then, you know, that opens up tons of other companies that, that can use it, or it also takes away their ability to use that data at all. And so you see that there is ideas around people needing to consent to have their data being used. And so particularly in China's new legislation around data protection, there's this idea that if you have an instance from an individual and that individual is in any way identifiable, you have to go and find that person and ask for their consent to use that data. So you see a little bit of individual data rights starting to pop up. Mm -hmm. That said, geopolitical entities like the EU are also trying to put together things like data storehouses where that data is open to everyone. So it's a little bit of the reverse where maybe you don't have rights to it. And instead, the ability to use that data can be distributed amongst everyone in the country in order to you know, maximize the overall profit in the country or in the geopolitical entity. EU isn't a country. And so there is a little bit of a push and pull, I think, right now where you see some legislation moving in the direction of individuals having some rights over their data at the same time as you see some legislation coming out that sort of proposes that an individual's data should be open for everyone to use <laughs> rather than an individual's company. So I think there's a lot of discussions right now in which way these things should be going. You know, I'm obviously personally a proponent of the idea that everybody should own the data that they create, and then they should be able to consent to whether or not it's shared more broadly. But I might be in the minority there, but all the more reason to sort of talk on these kinds of programs and, and present at, at, at places like the, the Wiki M3L workshop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I hadn't heard about the data privacy regulation in China that you referenced. In some ways, it flies a little bit in the face of the broader narrative about privacy in China, the social credit score and all these things. Do you, do you have any additional perspective there? I'm really confused by that, actually. I, feel, <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> I read through their legislation, not being a lawyer, and sort of asked people who are more legal scholars if my interpretation of what it was saying was right. And it seems like it is right. And so I'm really not sure what's going on there. I feel like it might be someone, it might be the job of someone who's more knowledgeable about China and China's government and, and what they're trying to sort of get at there. I'm very confused by it personally. It'd be sort of ironic, I suppose, if China leads the way in individual data rights, but we might be moving in that direction right now. Yeah. If anyone who's listening to this knows anyone, let Meg and I know. Yes, please. I want to understand. On the returning to data curation, talk a little bit about some of the ways that your work around measurement and quantification helps you kind of think through and address the, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about so, so far. 
Yeah. So we want to understand the quality of data. And part of what I'm pushing for is prioritizing quality over quantity a little bit more. Arguably, if you have good quality data, you don't need as much of the quantity of data, which means that you can be a lot more selective about whether or not you are including personal information or personally identifying information, whether or not you're including things like stereotypes and biases, which can then be laundered through a model and then pushed back out at the community, affecting all kinds of decisions that happen under the hood. And so if you can start to measure, for example, the strength of association between a term like smile and woman versus smile and man in some slice of data that you're thinking of, then if it's a very high association and you want to be working towards data that can reflect a more equitable universe, then perhaps you don't want to sample that data directly. Perhaps you want to do something a little bit more clever in order to make sure that there isn't such a strong skew. So by being able to measure these kinds of skews, come up with actual measurements that can do this, now we can start quantifying serious issues in the data and using that to inform what we do collect. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that, one of the early ways as a community, we've sought to do a better job around understanding the biases and data sets are kind of like data sheets for data sets and that workshop, that body of work by Timnit and others and the model cards. And it sounds like what you're doing connects to those efforts by increasing the sophistication, you know, if those things are, are dashboards, you're increasing the sophistication of the metrics that are surfaced in those dashboards. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, I was the first author on model cards just to make the connection. <laughs> so it's not really surprising that my work is reflective of those kinds of goals. Yep. So I would say, uh, so I'm working on model cards still, and it goes to one big part of that is what you evaluate. And so that again goes to the data. So I've really been focusing on that aspect of model card and the kind of things you want to quantify in the data. And I've also been working on data cards, which is heavily inspired by data sheets. What's the difference? Data cards are shorter. (laughs) So data sheets are pretty comprehensive in terms of all the different decisions that go into creating a data set. Mm -hmm. So they're really wonderful artifacts to have in terms of auditing the development of machine learning systems. They're a little bit more difficult to do in terms of getting developers to actually implement them. So if you're, you know, asking someone who is trying to upload their data set, all the details of the compensation protocol from crowd workers and things like that, they're going to be a lot less likely to, to fill it out at all. And so data cards are trying to get a bit at how can we incentivize good practices or how can we encourage good practices while still being somewhat palatable to people who are uploading and, and sharing the data sets. So it's not as ideal as data sheets. It's, it's sort of speaking to the cynical reality that a lot of people don't care. And how do we sort of get them to start caring? So part of that is creating measurements that can be automatically run on the data set and then be used to fill out the data card. So that goes back again to how to quantify things in the data set, like the biases and skews, like the naturalness, which, uh, side note, this is related to uh, the Zipfian distribution of language. It's super fun to implement and measure. But these measurements are things that can just be run automatically. And the more things that you can run automatically, the more buy-in there will be to have things like data cards released alongside your data. So we're trying to sort of lower the barrier to having some sort of responsibility-informed 
development of data and sharing of data by providing some automatic quantifications that speak to values of non-discrimination, that speak to ideas around having naturalistic data or data that's balanced a bunch of variety of topics, all these kinds of things that we ideally can have in a perfect data curated setting, but coming up with those measurements automatically so that people can see what kind of characteristics their data actually have, and then people can actually decide whether or not to use it for the various use cases that they foresee. So this data measurement area of work that I'm digging into more and more is really to help lower the barrier to create just sort of more responsible AI development life cycles and really being clear about what the data is encoding. Mm-hmm. On the topic of buy-in, the cycle of adoption isn't surprising, but it's my sense that after kind of a, a while, uh, a couple of years of not hearing a lot about data sheets, data cards after their proposal and introduction, now I'm starting to hear about their use quite frequently, you know, at least relatively. Is that your sense as well? Yeah. Well, so personally, I would say that my research has generally been around three years ahead of the (laughs) general pickup. It's true. I mean, I've just noticed it again and again, which is great for your citations because then it ends up being that your work is foundational. But nobody realizes that (laughs) until years later. But like, you know, doing a literature review to find some of the original ideas, like you stumble upon this random paper that no one cared about. So I think that's generally true for me with the model cards work. And it's also true for Tim Neat with the data sheets work, because, you know, when you're working in AI ethics, you're thinking very, very deeply about issues at a level of nuance that people who aren't working on AI ethics day to day don't really see. Mm -hmm. So it's not until you start seeing the issues that you start paying attention to the AI ethics things. And then that's when you start to see a little bit more of the need to address some sort of nuances. And that's when you get the pickup from work that people who had already been deeply thinking about these things have put in place for you. Ideally, we are defining things before they're needed so that once they are needed, they're already there and available. And I would say that's that's part of the goal in, in ethical AI work is to look forward. You look towards the future, you try and use foresight as much as possible, and then create the various tools and processes around that so they're ready to go once people are, are noticing the issues are actually coming up. Mm-hmm. And I love to hear how this the papers, data sheets, cards, et cetera, which in some sense, you first hear those, yeah, that makes sense. We should do that. Yeah. I'm finding interesting that In your case, the research about the, or this paper about model cards has led to what I perceive as more, I said crunchier, but like more technical or more concrete research into the metrics that then populate those cards. Yeah. And you're getting into, you mentioned Zipfi and distributions and and other stuff that kind of give, um, kind of fill out this idea of, hey, you should know what your model is about and you should publish data about it. Right. Yeah, I would say it's because people are starting to be affected by the problems that we were foreseeing, you know, a few years ago, right? So mm-hmm. there's the now, now unfortunately, classic gorilla thing, the, the Google gorillas issue. Mm-hmm where it had tagged people who are Black as gorillas. And that was massively offensive, hitting on a lot of historical harm. And so one of the solutions to handling something like that is looking at the association between different skin tones and different labels. So obvious. But if you're not 
thinking that way, if you're not sort of thinking through how these things can happen, then you don't implement those things. And so that's a kind of measurement, this sort of problematic associations that we were trying to put in place as we were foreseeing like, oh, given what we know about the data set that are being collected for language models, language models are going to hate Muslims. And then that was found like years later, but by doing an analysis of the data previously, it was very clear that that was something that language models were going to learn to propagate. Mm-hmm. So as the public has started to see the issues that we were foreseeing, they're sort of turning to see, well, what can be done? What are we thinking? And it turns out that that one of the key things to be able to do is to document, because as you document, you can trace where issues are coming from and address them. And this was one of the main takeaways, hopefully, from the stochastic parrots paper. Although I think people were maybe a little bit distracted by the the story, the, the massive <laughs> the firings story. from Google. Yeah, the yeah. back the backstory. But we actually thought that the main exciting thing from that that paper was the difficulty in, in doing the parrot emoji. <laughs> we thought that would be the big <laughs> the big thing. But one of the takeaways from that paper was that language models are too big when the data they're using is not documentable. And the reason Mm -hmm. that that's an Mm -hmm. issue is because you'll start having really harmful behavior from language models that you don't know where it came from. Yeah, and I I wanted to raise that issue. I think that was a theme. I don't recall how explicit it was, but it was a big takeaway from that conversation I referenced earlier with Thomas, like... You know, when we're talking about these large language models and the training data set essentially becomes the internet, like how do you manage these kinds of issues? And that's what you're speaking to now. Yeah. So if you can start measuring things, then you can start actually curating the data. And so, I mean, this also goes a lot to what sources you should be using. So I think it's now been generally agreed upon that you shouldn't use Reddit data because there's a lot of toxic and hateful and abusive language there and disproportionately directed it at women. And so, but that that took years to establish, right? So Reddit data used to be, I think it was even used in the Delphi ethics system that was that was launched through AI2. AI but yeah, so I mean, this is one of the reasons why coming up with quantifications of data is so, so important, as well as paying attention to the demographics of the people creating that data. Because now you can really understand what the data is starting to encode which means what the language model will encode. So it turns out that the C4 data set, which is a colossal data set used for training language models. C4? C4, yeah. Not to be confused with CFAR? Not to be, yeah. C4 (laughs) is NLP, CFAR is computer vision. Not that that really helps, I suppose. But, (laughs) (laughs) But the C4 data set has a lot of data sampled from Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Wikipedia has a lot of writing, disproportionately more writing from white North American men in their 20s. And so in practice, what does this mean? It means that Black history is basically not represented or represented very poorly. And for a while before I started telling people about this, Black history would redirect to African American history. Uh, which hopefully says so much. And if it doesn't sense, say so much to you, then perhaps you should check your biases. All right, right. <laughs> you mentioned naturalness earlier as one of these metrics that you found interesting. Elaborate on that. Yeah. So as we're trying to collect data that reflects natural language, there becomes a question of how do I know it's natural? And so one approach is to say, well, I'll be careful with my sampling in order to make sure that 
the websites I'm using or whatever captures naturalistic language, but there isn't really a useful quantification of that, or there, there generally hasn't been other than this more qualitative sort of like, that looks natural to me. And it's important because if you're trying to build models that can understand natural language, so that means pulling out the key entities, figuring out the contents uh, of a question, things like that, these tools that really rely on having a reasonable natural language understanding, then it's useful to be able to actually measure naturalness. So from here, we can look at things like corpus linguistics, going back to Brown Corpus in 1964, where there were some really cool ideas around what it means to have natural language. And one of them was noticing that the Zipfian distribution of so many things in nature also applies to natural language. And so the Zipfian distribution, it's very hard to explain in one sentence since it's a mathematical concept. But basically, here's a very like simple, oversimplified way of saying it. The most frequent word in someone's document or whatever will be roughly twice as frequent as the second most frequent word, which will be roughly twice as frequent as the third most frequent word. So there's this inverse relationship between frequency and essentially rank. So what Zip's law states is that they'll, it'll, it'll follow this, this sort of general tendency, and it turns out that there's this parameter, we'll call it alpha, that can kind of shape what that curve looks like. And it turns out that for English, that's already been calculated by, by nice corpus linguists and linguists and stuff. And we know that alpha is actually like one. And so different languages have different kinds of shapes that follow this general tendency. And because they've already been calculated for a ton of languages, we can see how well some collection fits to the ideal Zipfian distribution. And then the farther out it is for that language, which we can already know, then we can say like, well, according to this sort of theory, it is actually moving farther away from what we would expect in natural language. So, you know, it's a measure. It's not the best measure, but it's something that corpus linguists have put forward and is super useful. And personally, in, in my work on data measurements, I found that it's really helped to identify data sets that are appropriately capturing general conversations and stuff and data sets that, for example, have a lot of artifacts or weird mixing of different domains that wasn't well controlled for and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it can be really useful. You mentioned as I think it was kind of a motivation for this particular measure, natural text on the internet versus newswire press releases, which have a, a different way of using language. But this also has kind of rings of thinking about a world where we have these large language models and they're quote unquote polluting the internet with spam and kind of almost an adversarial and anti-adversarial cat and mouse game. Is that part of what you're thinking about here or is that just tangential? With respect to the naturalness? With respect to naturalness, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that might be relevant here is that if we're trying to figure out whether or not something is synthetically generated, so, you know, generated from a language model versus created by people, we have to be thinking about these sort of second order characteristics. Mm -hmm. So what can we maybe not tell as we look at things sentence by sentence, but if we calculate statistics over patterns in a bunch of sentences, are there things that we see that's different than what we would expect from when, when humans are generating it. And so these kinds of measurements, such as naturalness-based measurements, would help to get at that. 
And so as we're trying to figure out trolls that are spewing hateful and abusive content that are actually from systems that are just using large language models and misinformation and all this other kind of stuff, as we can start developing these second order kinds of measurements, then we can start being able to a lot more easily make distinctions. Yeah. So what I'm hearing there is that your focus is on bias and human impact, but the cybersecurity folks may find this interesting too, or the adversarial folks might find this interesting too. Hopefully, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, Meg, it has been wonderful catching up with you and chatting about some of the things that you've been working on and thinking about. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for asking me and letting me babble about things I'm fascinated by. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Very awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.